I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Randy Harvey grew up in a tiny town in Texas, but sports writing took him around the world. And he took readers with him to World Cups, Super Bowls, golf majors. He took them along with the Showtime Lakers of Magic and Kareem. Most of all, Randy took fans to summer and winter games as one of the most prominent Olympic writers of the past four decades. I'm eager to travel with him on this episode. Well, Randy, it's so nice to have you on the show. I really appreciate you joining us. How you been? Thank you. Good. Doing well. It's been too long since I've chatted with you. I know whenever we were at big events together, you were always a voice of wisdom for me. You always had some nice advice. There were times when I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But if I went to Randy Harvey, he always had the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks a lot. I hope uh, you know, I didn't take you too many blind alleys. No, well, if we went down blind alleys, we went together. So, you know. And sometimes there were good stories down those blind alleys. So, Randy, 50 years of surviving the newspaper industry, I think uh, you ought to have some kind of uh, reward for that. Well, it was a very rewarding career. And when I look back on it, some amazing experiences. And that, that's you know, my reward is to have been able to do as much as I, I did and uh, cover as many big events and see as many places as I did. And went all around the world on the, on the newspaper's dime, so... Not bad. How many countries, Randy? Oh, you know, I've never never bothered to, to count them up, but, um, I mean, you name it, I've probably been there. Yeah, your passport must have had about 40 pages. <laughs> 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 yeah. You're a writer and an editor, which meant that, you know, you had to deal with the writers, and I always feel like you had to be like the head of the class then, knowing all these screwballs out there and sitting in the desk. <laughs> you had to keep control of these guys because <laughs> you knew who they were. Well, being being a, a writer and then becoming an editor, I had a you know, great perspective. There was, you know, nothing the the writers could come up with that probably I, I wasn't able to, to answer or probably hadn't had a similar experience. When I think about your career as a writer especially, I think about big beats, big events, big cities. I mean, you worked in um, Baltimore, Dallas, Chicago, New York— Houston, and also obviously, obviously, nearly thirty years in Los Angeles at the L.A. Times. So you've been, you know, the big places, the big markets, and you covered so many, uh, you know, big stars and events that we got a lot to lot to talk about. I grew up in a, a small town of thirty eight hundred people. Really, and, uh, my dream was to go to the city, and so I went to just about all of them. So. <laughs> thirty eight hundred. Was there a newspaper in that town? Yeah, the Mineola Monitor. Did you ever write for it? Yeah, I did. And when I was in high school, I wrote for the high school newspaper. And so they used to, the downtown newspaper is the one that published that. So they would use my stories sometimes. What did you mean by downtown? The stoplight? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. We had two stoplights. (laughs) Well, you come from a long line of great Texas sports writers. I mean, there's so many famous sports writers from Texas. Dan Jenkins, Blackie Sherrod, on and on. And I found a quote from the early 70s when you were young in your career. And Blackie Sherrod said, he was asked about the future of sports writing. And he said, I got a kid named Randy Harvey with all the earmarks, if he'll stick with it. <laughs> were you going to not stick with it? Did you have thoughts of doing something no, else? No, I don't know. I, you know. I think he thought I'd get smart and get out. But, uh, <laughs> I stayed in it and uh, I did stick with it. 
Well, Randy, when you were growing up in small town Texas, uh, you know, and there were so many great writers down there, did you have favorites? Did you have people who influenced you? Was that part of why you became a sports writer? Probably the biggest influence on why I became a sports writer was Claire B. He was a former coach who wrote all the Chip Hilton novels, and I would devour those when I was uh, when I was in grade school. And then I would try to, to try to write a book, and I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the process. You know, as soon as I got a chance to go into journalism, I, I did. So that was that was probably the, the the biggest influence on my career. And my dad was um, had had worked in newspapers too. So, oh, was he a writer or an editor? Or? He was actually a, a school teacher, and then a and then a school administrator, but in the, you know, that didn't pay very much. So in the summers, he'd, he'd work at the local newspaper, the Lufkin News. So you grew up with ink on your fingers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I right. mean, the smell of newspapers, and it was just part of your life from an early age, I assume. Exactly. From the outside, they think that writers, oh, you're just friends with all these guys, and you're cheerleaders. and But that's that, you have to learn early on, right, that that's not the case, that you're a reporter and uh, you're the conduit to the fans. Is that something that was stressed to you early on uh, in your career in Texas? Yes, we um, we had an orange stick. It was a it was a paint can stick, a stir, and it was orange and white. And if you wrote something too complimentary at the Daily Texan, you got the dreaded orange stick. Really? And that was not a that was not good. We <laughs> got the orange stick. I only you know my years there only only got it once and. Uh, <laughs> And so uh, for a story I wrote on the on the freshman basketball team. So, <laughs> so it was too complimentary. Yeah. So it was too, if you were too complimentary, you got that orange stick. <laughs> Sometimes I think it probably took us overboard into negativity. So we had to, had, had to learn balance, you know, after right. that too. So now to try to be straight down the, the middle and not always negative. Right. But I think that's a great lesson, the orange, the orange stick. <laughs> yeah, but I did learn I wasn't uh, I wasn't part of the team. <laughs> you couldn't be, right? Right. I mentioned right. I mentioned Daryl the football Daryl Oil the football coach at Texas, and I also think there was a a moment early in your career when uh, he had some uh, yeah, redheaded, bearded, ponytailed guy, some country singer he wanted to introduce you <laughs> to. Uh, tell us about this. Tell us about this moment. He called uh, Kirk Bowles, who's an American statesman. I've been there forever, and I were out covering practice, and he called us over one day. He says, hey, I want you to meet somebody. This is Willie Nelson. And I didn't know who Willie Nelson really? was at that time. Yeah, and so I really wasn't into country music. So uh, anyway, shook his hand, was glad to meet him. And uh, then it was shortly after when that outlaw country took off, and uh, I certainly knew who Willie was <laughs> after that. So, Well, Willie's a big star, obviously, and, and you were around so many big stars in your sports writing career, athletes, obviously, and I think that's only appropriate that you spent nearly three decades of your career in Los Angeles, you know, in Hollywood. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so you were in Chicago, you were in New York, but you left New York in 1981 to go out to the LA Times, and you became the beat writer to cover the Los Angeles Lakers. Right, it was the, the magic and uh, Kareem and uh, Showtime, Jamal Wilkes. You know, the first one of the the first big stories I had was uh, Paul Westhead getting fired. Uh, that was my my uh, first year on the beat. It was about three weeks into the season. Oh, so, welcome uh, to the beat! It was thrown <laughs> into the fire. Then uh, Pat Riley took over, and Pat was Pat was great. Pat was great to do. So tell me about that. That was a story that was huge news at the time when Westhead was fired because. They had won the NBA championship the year before under Westhead, right? No, they they'd lost it. I, th I think my memory serves. I think they had lost to Philadelphia mm -hmm. that year, and uh, 
and then they came back, and then they won it under Riley the first year I covered them. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, Magic, um, you know, the substitution uh, rotation that West had used, Magic uh, complained about it. Next thing you know, uh, you know, Westhead was gone. <laughs> Magic, to his defense, a lot of people thought he got the coach fired. He never asked for Westhead to be fired. He just was making remarks about, you know, how he, he didn't like the substitution rotation. So, But the Lakers acted and brought in Riley, and it worked out. Randy, how many seasons did you cover the Lakers for the Times? Uh, just two full-time. Two full-time seasons. So, And this is really when Showtime's taken off with Pat Riley. What was it like in the fabulous forum all those nights? Oh, it was it was unbelievable. They had the the USC pet band. Jerry Buss was a big USC fan, so they had a pet band and and uh, dancing dancing Barry, who was a sort of a mascot guy. Wait a minute, dancing Barry. <laughs> and then uh, Chick Hearn, of course, she had Chick Hearn. Yeah, the announcer. Uh, yep. All in the games and the crowd was Jack Nicholson sitting on the sidelines, and you never knew who you were going to see. You know, Deborah Winger or Angie Dickinson or just. Uh, you know, Doris Day, you know, <laughs> anybody. That's amazing. You mentioned that uh, Pat Riley was great to deal with. What made him great to deal with from a writer's perspective? Honesty. You know, if you asked a question, he answered it. He wouldn't lie about it, about things, you know, and uh, I, I always really appreciated that. You know, he didn't, if he made a mistake, he, he would admit it. And uh, and if you asked him about it, he didn't seem to mind being asked. He wasn't defensive about it. I don't know. He was just, yeah, I thought... Probably the best I ever covered in terms of that. Do you think that came from him being a player all those years too? Could have been a, being a player. Could have been. Uh, it's just the way he was. He was. He was that way at Kentucky. He, you know, he he told a, a great story about the Texas Western game because he was in that the game. The 1966 uh, Rups Runs. Yeah, you know, one of the most famous college basketball games. Right. The all black lineup for Texas Western beats the all white lineup from Kentucky. Right. That's what he talked about. He grew up in Schenectady, New York. His dad was a minor league baseball coach, and but used to take Pat to the playgrounds and just let him loose. And so Pat grew up playing with uh, the black kids, and he learned a lot. But he got to Kentucky, and when they played that Texas Western game, he said he knew they lost. He knew they lost even before the game because he says his teammates were just scared to death. And of course, he he wasn't because he'd grown up playing with black kids, and he tried to. Tell them, hey, they're just kids like anybody else. They're like us. You know, don't. But he said his teammates were just literally shaking. And so um, he said, I knew, I knew then we weren't going to win. What do you think made Riley the right coach at the right time with those Lakers? His wife was a psychologist. I think he learned a lot from her. You know, I think he would have, you know, he, if he had issues, he, he'd just go home and talk to Chris about it and do their pillow talk, uh, talking about that. So I, I think he learned a lot about psychology. Did you ever talk to her about basketball? I, I talked to her. I, I don't remember talking to her much about basketball. I remember going to the foreign club, forum club after games. And she was there. And, uh, and so sometimes we'd talk to her. But Tell us what the forum club was. Forum club was, you know, obviously in the, in the forum. And it was just a, a little bar where after games, the writers and celebrities would, would go and, you know, bus would make an appearance and, and, uh, Sometimes uh, the players didn't didn't go there very often, uh, but uh, Pat would always be there, and his wife would be there. Chick Hearn would be there, and it was just a place where you gathered. Jerry West, it was just a place where you gathered, and you just you just talked, and you got to know each other. I think that probably helped, right? Because you could relate to people; they knew what job you were doing. You know what job they're obviously doing, right? But you were able to build some type of relationship, right? 
working relationship. Right. We talked about the Lakers and the scene and, uh, you know, Showtime and her stars everywhere. Well, you couldn't have had two bigger players than Magic Johnson and um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. No, no, it was, un- it was just, it was, it was unreal. I, uh, I remember Bill Dwyer, the sports editor, he said, since maybe you don't, you don't know it yet, but you're going to look back on this and it's like you covered the 1927 Yankees. And uh, he was right. He was right. Yeah, he, yeah, unbelievable. He was right. Unbelievable uh, collection of, uh, of uh, basketball talent and, and characters. It's interesting how sometimes in life the right group of people come together at the right time. I mean, obviously there was talent there, but was there something else there that made those Lakers special? Magic, I think, was his enthusiasm was just infectious. And I think that that, that probably had a lot to do with it. I mean, he just... He just he lit up a room. He exuded confidence. Everybody on the team kind of fed off of that. Pat used to talk about this. There, there was a feeling around that team. He said, like Kareem would go up for his sky hook. He said, and there was just a sense that everybody in the building was was feeling that, and there was some some sort of magical essence to it of of it rubbing off on the on the on the players too. So. You mentioned Magic's enthusiasm. What was the difference between Irvin Johnson and Magic Johnson? Irv was real. I mean, uh, and nobody called him Magic. I, I never heard anybody ever call him Magic. They called him Buck, right? Didn't the players and coaches call him Buck? Yeah, Buck or EJ or Irv or Irvin. And, you know, he was, he was, a, he was a, real, a real person. He had that, that magical enthusiasm. Somebody gave him that name, but... Yeah, Buck was a very good, good, good name for him. It talks to just like he was just a real, real guy. Well, he was so out there with his personality, and then you also had Kareem, who was much more reticent with how he dealt with everybody. Tell us about dealing with Kareem. He was, he was, you know, when I think about Kareem, I think sometimes I wonder, you know, he almost gets overlooked sometimes when people talk about the greatest ever, and it's Jordan and and so forth. But look at Kareem's career; it's it's unbelievable. Do you think his personality has some something to do with the fact that maybe he's not always just knee-jerked reaction to like Kareem's the greatest ever? Yeah, probably so. Probably so. I mean, he wasn't out there. He was just, you know, you know, Magic was such the, the big presence on that, that team. And I th- think Kareem enjoyed that. I enjoyed having um, other players take away the attention from him. But obviously he was one of the greats of all time. And I, I think he's Usually, I seem right. I mean, he was all-time leading scorer. I was there that night when he, when he uh, passed Will to become the all-time leading scorer, and so uh, great experience. And Kareem was, if you could get him alone, he didn't like that locker room experience. That you know, sports writers coming in and crowding around the cubicle, and mm-hmm. he didn't enjoy that. But if you got him alone, he used to tell stories about growing up and you know, in, in Harlem, and his 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 true love was baseball. He'd been a First baseman um, uh, on his high school baseball team. Kareem was a first baseman. <laughs> yeah. Wow. He could he could catch all the throws. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not not anything went over him. That's for sure. So, um, but if you got him just telling stories about those days in high school and growing up, he was actually you know quite pleasant mm-hmm. under those circumstances. But um, he didn't he didn't like that, that crowd of sports writers. 
that Riley used to call us the buzzards. Said, you know, creams thinks you're buzzards. <laughs> well, I think we were buzzards, right? <laughs> <laughs> Probably when so. When you think about it, like, like, can you imagine every day you get done with your job and somebody comes in with a bunch of questions for you? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't enjoy it. Especially, you know, standing there, you know, with, you know, half clothed. Or, right. You know, just in your underwear. Right. So. Right. Nobody ever goes into the uh, Rolling Stones dressing room after the game, after the concert and say, hey, Keith, what happened on that chord there? I think you missed the chord <laughs> during Gimme Shelter. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, yeah. Well, you, you, you had a, a couple years with the Lakers and Showtime, and that's, you know, such a part of our uh, culture and sports. It's a moment in time. But really, the bulk of your career as a writer, especially, you know, was international sports. Well, when in, um, the 84 Olympics were coming, and so I'd covered the Lakers in the early 80s, Bill Dwyer, the sports editor, put me on the Olympic beat in '83 uh, to get ready for for the Olympics, and um, he sent me everywhere to all the major championships because he said when when and he sent you know I wasn't the only one, but the writers, if you have a beat like swimming beat, you go to the big swimming meets or track. I did I was doing track, so I went to all the big track meets. Whatever your beat was in the Olympics, he, he sent people there because he said when when the Olympics come and those those all those athletes come to LA, I want them to know who you are, so that they, you know they'll answer your question. If you see them in the in the mix zone or whatever, that you you know they're going to answer your question first because they know you. And you had covered the '76 games, right? Yeah, I covered '76. I was at the Chicago uh, Sun Times, and uh, they sent me up to Montreal, and that was fun. And uh, you know, I covered Nadia Comaneci. I'll never forget uh, Dick Young uh, going through the press room and telling American writers. Don't cover the gymnastics. It's just a dance contest. And uh, I thought, how can you, how can you say that? How can you not cover Nadia Comaneci? Were you in the in the arena the night she had her perfect ten? Yeah, 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 yeah. I covered all of her performances there. She was sixteen, and uh, you know, showed no jitters and just uh, very stoic and poised about it. So, and of course, and then there's Bella Caroli over on the on the sidelines of cheering her on. He, he was not poised, but he brought the enthusiasm to it. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. So you covered the 76 games, and then they're coming to Los Angeles, which is a whole different beast, right? Because all of a sudden, you're writing for the newspaper in the city where the Olympics are being hosted. That seems to me to be very overwhelming as a writer and a reporter. What was it like to be on the team that had to cover for the host city. Oh, I liked it. I, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the challenge. And, uh, you know, and that's what I accepted is I knew that everybody would be, um, 
be reading, you know, you know what I was writing because that was the, the local paper. And uh, I just took it as a challenge and, and said, you know, okay, you can, let's do this. So, uh, you know, I, I loved it and uh, got to know so many writers through that. You know, they recognized my, my um, byline and, you know, seek me out in the, in the press room. So I, I got to know, you know, just about everybody in the business. Right. Let's talk about those 84 games in L.A. because when you think about it, in 80, the Americans had boycotted the Soviet games, and um, now the games are coming to America. The Soviets return to favor, and they boycott, and their block nations boycott. But the 84 games, when you think about it, in some ways they might have saved the Olympic movement in the modern era. Do you think that's true, and why? Well, Peter Ubroth um, was, a, was a genius at um, marketing his unique plan to go out and sell different sports to different sponsors. So you wouldn't just, you could buy the entire Olympic package, but also you could just buy a sport. So you buy track and field or you could buy gymnastics or, or volleyball, you know, just whatever you wanted to buy. So that opened it up to so many other sponsors because before then they had uh, been restricted to, you have to buy the whole package. So it brought so many other sponsors into the games with so much more money. And kind of taught uh, the Olympic movement how to how to deal with. Uh, well, we talked about how the Lakers, you know, a group of people together at a certain time. It's magical. That summer of '84, it was just right for America. You know, Ronald Reagan's the president. It's the summer of Bruce and Prince and Madonna, and and everybody's into it. I think the Americans won 170 something medals. Yeah, that something summer. like that. Yeah, they were. Yeah, obviously without the Eastern Bloc there, except for uh, Romania. Without the Eastern Bloc, there it was um, kind of easy pickings for the for the U.S., but it was but it was good. You know, it, it created a, an atmosphere, and uh, you know, people obviously in the United States uh, loved it. So. What was the atmosphere like in Los Angeles for those weeks? I think there was a lot of lot of a lot of pride. You know, a lot of joy that the games were going off and were so successful, and uh, there was no traffic, so people. <laughs> So wait a minute, how, how was there no traffic in L.A.? Tell me about this. Well, people were so frightened of, of the Olympics. A lot of people left left town, or a lot of people took vacations, so they wouldn't have to deal with the traffic. And so as a result, there, there wasn't much traffic. And um, uh, people really used the buses to get around. So they, they had a lot of extra buses and a lot of extra routes for people. So uh, that was, uh, it all contributed to it. And the weather was perfect, so... It was just a, it was just a magical time. Well, the big star of the games obviously was Carl Lewis. Won four four gold medals to match Jesse Owens. I say Carl and Mary Lou, yeah. Mary Lou, yeah. Well, let's talk Carl first. What what was, um, you know, he seemed to have this whole other presence about him that went beyond track and field. What what was it like covering Carl Lewis uh, during those eighty four games, especially? Well, he was a, he was another one that that wasn't. Um, very easy to deal with personally. He didn't like much media attention and didn't like prying into his life for whatever reasons. And so uh, he wasn't that easy to, to to deal with. But obviously, you know, one of the best athletes we've ever seen. So you can can help to write about laudatory things about him. You have to remember there was there was um, the drug issue, right? The steroids, uh, you know, had had kind of captured a a lot of attention from track and field. And Carl always resented that. And particularly some in the European media would accuse him of, you know, he, he's so good, he must be on drugs mm-hmm. without ever 
uh, really any evidence uh, whatsoever. So um, Carl, he resented that too. So. What stands out about him as an athlete when you not dealing with him, but just chronicling what he was doing on the track? Well, just how smooth he was, how easy it seemed to come for him. He didn't seem to be working at it. It, it just seemed to, it just seemed to, he was, he just seemed to, uh, natural. That seems to be the case with the great ones, right? They make the hard thing look easy. And yes, no matter what yeah, it is, yeah. if it's athletics or, or whatever, it's something like, but what that comes from is all the preparation, right? I think so. And, you know, Carl had been preparing for that moment since he was, you know, um, a junior high school student. And yeah, and so he obviously a lot of preparation. And he had a great coach, Tom Telez out of the University of Houston, was, um, you know, one of the great track and field coaches. And Carl was, was uh, fortunate to be able to, to work with him. Now, you mentioned Mary Lou, and that's Mary Lou Retton, obviously. <laughs> yes. She captured the hearts of America in 1984. Did you cover the gymnastics competition? I was mainly covering track and field, but I was there that night, and I did a sidebar on Mary Lou. And uh, I did it mainly on Bella because Bella had left Romania and you know, was now coaching Mary Lou. So my sidebar was on Bella, and uh, he used to call her Little Buddy, but everybody was with accident. Everybody thought he was calling her Little Body. So I saw a lot of stories there saying, Little body, but either way it worked. <laughs> yeah. So that was at Poly Pavilion, right? The competition? Yes. Tell us about that night and what was special about seeing Mary Lou Retton win the gold medal in the all-around with a perfect 10. Well, Eastern Bloc dominated, so the Russians weren't there, but the Romanians were there. And um, everybody kind of thought the Romanians were, would, be the, would be the class of the, of the Olympics because of the Eastern Bloc and they'd been so successful. You know, Mary Lou came out with that perfect vault and stole the show. Yes! She has done the best vault of her life! What was it about her that captured everybody? Her enthusiasm, her smile, she had that huge smile, such joy. She just said, took such joy in it. Well, you must have taken a lot of joy covering those games when they were finished <laughs> in Los Angeles because I was, I'm sure you were putting in some good hours during those weeks. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a letdown after they were over. But the LA Times sent me to Europe after that. Because the um, you know there's a you, those series of great track meets in Europe every year, and the Grand Prix meets because they wanted to see how the U.S. athletes would have stacked up against the, the Soviet bloc, yeah, the Eastern Bloc athletes. So I went all over Europe covering in, in Scandinavia, covering that, and it was just fascinating. Uh, obviously, the Eastern Europeans won their fair share, but the you know the U.S. had a great track team. Do you have a favorite athlete that stands out? Some of the names that you got to see are incredible. You know, Michael Phelps, obviously, or, you know, Michael Johnson, Dan Jansen, Usain Bolt. I mean, it goes on and on. Tell me about some of the favorites that you got to witness in the Olympic level. An athlete I particularly appreciated was Edwin Moses. Yeah, kind of forgotten. Yeah. I think his winning streak was 88 at one point. And uh, just... Um, he just seemed to have, he was, he was perfection. And um, that's such a, a difficult race, the 400 immediate hurdles. And the way he handled that, that pressure of a winning streak, I think he's as close to perfection as I've seen in an athlete. Why do you think he was able to handle it? Great focus. You know, and, and that, that hurdles, you have to have your steps exactly right. You just can't be off a stride. And he, he just never was. And I think he just, you know, had, he had, Really grateful. Obviously, very intelligent and very focused. Well, there are so many great things that happen in Olympics, but sometimes there are some really, you know, terrible things. And in 88 in Seoul, 
the big story that happened was on your beat in track and field was with uh, Ben Johnson. Right. Yeah, and, and there had been speculation uh, for a long time that the Canadian athletes, uh, Ben in particular, were using drugs, and you know that's where it all came about. What was it like covering that particular story? Oh, I, Bill Dwyer had gotten to know some of the um, the sports editors at the LA Times had had gotten to know some of the Korean officials very well, and uh, I remember he called at four a.m. said, uh, "If you were sleeping, you're not anymore." <laughs> I just he said, "I just got a call that Ben tested positive. Get up here and get down to the office." So it was at the office and. At by you know four thirty or so, and then um, I think around eleven is when they uh, had the press conference to announce it. But because of the time difference, we were able to get it in the the, the paper. So uh, we actually had it first. Well, that's got to be a you know one that you always remember in terms of being right there when you know when his a historic moment happens. It's not a great achievement by somebody. Unfortunately, it's a bad thing, but sometimes that's what happens in in in, in the Well, and it altered track and field in, uh, uh, forever, and uh, I still enjoyed covering it, but it wasn't the same after that. I mean, there was so much suspicion. Any time anybody had a great performance, there was suspicions. How did you balance that out as a, as a reporter, but also somebody who appreciated it from a, just from a, somebody who likes the sport? How did you balance that out in your own mind? Well, I had to separate it. I mean, I, I had to be, you know, a reporter first. And so right. um, just sitting there enjoying, I enjoyed watching, but I, I didn't let that, um, you know, move over into the professional side. Tried to be as vigilant as everyone else. And after that, um, Ben Johnson incident, they had um, inquiry in Canada. And I actually spent the whole summer in Toronto, had an apartment there. Did you really? Spent the, you know, whole time there just covering that Dublin inquiry and would just, you know, go back to LA on weekends. Fascinating. You know, Charlie Francis and all those Canadian athletes and how much we learned from it about uh, drugs and the use of drugs. How long did that go on? Oh, it was about, it was, it was, you know, uh, I want to say about uh, four months. Four months on the same story. Wow. Yeah. Well, the Canadians took it, took it very seriously. So, which, you know, good for them. But that can be overwhelming, though, right all of a sudden. Right. That's like the only thing you're thinking about and dealing with. It's almost, I can remember moments like that in your career where you're like, oh, what happened? You don't even know what's going on in real life because you're just totally wrapped up in the story. Like right, that. yes, yeah. The other Olympics that you covered, are there uh, certain moments that stood out? You know, we talked about some good and we talked about some bad. But when you think about somebody says, hey, Randy, you covered all those Olympics, what comes to mind overall for you? Tanya and Nancy. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I saw the movie, I, Tanya, and uh, I didn't think they got it right. I thought they were much too sympathetic to Tanya. I mean, there was just something pathological about her. And, uh, you know, I'm sure she didn't have the, the best of all uh, upbringings, but there was just something that was wrong about her. And if you didn't have to spend much time around her to, to know about it, when uh, uh, we were at the trials and um, uh, Nancy... Uh, was uh, kneecapped. <laughs> Somebody came in and, and told us about it in the press room, said, you know, Nancy's been injured. Somebody attacked her. It's funny, Christine Brennan, who I think you had on this show before and uh, others, we just turned to each other and said, Tanya. Everybody just <laughs> said it at the same Everybody said it at the same time. You just knew. What is it like covering the World Cup? And And because when you think about it, you were covering it, you know, as soccer was kind of building in America. 
But when you go to the World Cup in those days, what was it like? It was wonderful. You know, the the first real international soccer experience I had was in Trinidad and, Trinidad and Tobago when Paul Calagiri hit the, the goal from far out to, to win the game for the U.S. and send them to the World Cup, 1990 World Cup in Italy. And it was the first time in, you know, since the 50s that the U.S. had qualified for a World Cup. So, but the uh, Trinidadian, they couldn't have been better hosts. And even after they lost, they were just wonderful, you know, joyous people and uh, so much fun to, to be there. And then to, to go to Italy and, and uh, be assigned to cover the U.S. team. And they, their home base was in Florence, which... Not a bad home base. <laughs> unbelievable city. And then uh, to go to Rome for the for the finals in uh, New York Times and, and the L.A. Times shared an apartment. And it was a place where Dostoevsky had lived. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so such, such fun. We had a party. I uh, announced we were having a party at that apartment. And uh, about 50 of the volunteers showed up with one bottle of wine. And so <laughs> they, they, they were standing at the, at the door with uh, this one bottle of wine. And I said, oh, shoot, I think we're going to have to make a, a, a wine run. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, great experiences. And probably the best World Cup moment was the women's when Brandy Chastain's goal and the, you know, the famous shot of her tearing off her jersey and just that, um, you know, that moment stands out among other, for so many, so many reasons. Uh, first, uh, you know, the thrill of victory, as they say, and then um, the women's empowerment. Yeah, why did that, when you think about that, we're talking about moments in time that come together. Why, what was it about that women's soccer team, the U.S. women's soccer team? Why were they the right team at the right moment? The people on the team, there was, there was, there was Brandy, but there was, of course, Mia Hamm. And then um, probably the, the team leader and the one they all looked to was Julie Foudy. She had so many instructions on the field. They called her Loudy Foudy. <laughs> but she was great to deal with. And the, you know, the team was just, you're right, it was just the, the right team. Uh, Michelle Akers and just so many players who, who stand out. And then that whoever the photographer was who captured that, that picture, Brandy on her knees and clenching her fists and, you know, the, the big smile on her face. It was just unbelievable. What was it like in the Rose Bowl that day? It was it was one of the first women's sports, I, th- I thought, where people took it as seriously, treated it the same as the men's sports. You know, all of, for all of a sudden, you know, there was no difference. There was no men. There was there were no women. It was just sport. And I think it set the stage for, for what has continued to happen throughout the years. At the uh, Athens Olympics, I was talking to Mia Hamm, and I said to her, I said, I have two daughters. They're little, and they play soccer. And I said, you and your teammates had a lot to do with that, you know, because 20 years before that, if I had daughters that age, they weren't probably going to play soccer, you know. And I think, and, and she, she actually, you know, seemed very appreciative of that comment. I'm sure she's heard it before. But it was kind of nice to express that to her because as a father and a journalist, I got to see both perspectives there, and uh, they did. They had a cultural impact on women's athletics. Yeah, I think they were they they were the, the the trailblazers. Well, Randy, your career as a writer took you all over the world. When you think back and you think about fifty years, do you miss it? Do you miss being a writer? And is there something you miss about it? Yeah, yeah, I miss you know I miss the the camaraderie, you know, the staff, and you know, and just you know being among the. The crowd of sports writers, you know, going to those events and being with a lot of people. Yeah, I, I missed that. 
There's something about that feeling of being in that group. They're all kind of like the misfit toys. Yeah, I like sports They have writers. this warped perspective on the world. Right. <laughs> I think it's too much travel, too many deadlines, but um, they're also kind of funny. <laughs> think about this. You survived 50 years of the newspaper industry, so they should give you some type of award for that. I mean, you even survived an assassination attempt, <laughs> right? Diego Maradona shot an air rifle at you. Is that right? <laughs> the Argentinian soccer star? <laughs> Yeah, we had a, a great interpreter, uh, Jerry Longman from the New York Times, and I had a great interpreter, and she said, you know, I'll, I'll try to use, um, we said, hey, what can you do for us? Can you get uh, Diego? She says, well, I'll try. And so uh, she got him enough to come out to the balcony, but he, he wasn't welcoming, though. <laughs> what happened? Oh, nothing. He died. I think he he did he just shot it into the air. But anyway, I don't think he was trying to, trying to hurt us. I think he... Uh, so, but it was a good experience. It was fun. You sound like somebody from Texas. Oh, he just had a gun. He's fired it in the air. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, you see it all the time here. <laughs> well, Randy, thanks a lot for joining us. I, well, thanks for I having really me. enjoyed it. it yeah, it's been great to reminisce and, and just great to catch up with you. Um, you know, I, yeah, likewise. There was a moment in my own career, I will, I will leave you with this. Uh, it's a thank you to you. There was a moment, you probably don't recall, but you and I had a conversation where I, um, you know, I was thinking about going into news projects and uh, taking a, a leave from sports, and uh, I didn't know what to think about it. And I remember talking to you at length about this, and you really encouraged me and said that it'll show that you're trying to challenge yourself and grow. And I did that, and I left sports for a few years, and it made me a better reporter. Oh, okay. It made good. me experience things that didn't uh, that I had never come across. And then when I did return to sports. I just had a whole different perspective, and uh, I don't know if I ever properly thanked you for that, but you had a big part well, in that. Thanks for uh, for pointing that out. You're welcome. And uh, yeah, I never met anybody who didn't benefit from spending a few years as a, even if it was just a couple, as a news news side reporter. It made them better sports writers. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcast or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Sarah Wilgroup, I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo Jo. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network.